This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we found that credit card skimming attacks increased 26% in March compared to the month before. Sadly, this was expected. As coronavirus drove people into their homes, online shopping increased dramatically, which for threat actors presented an opportunity. With some shelter-in-place orders extended to May, we expect these attacks to continue. And I expect my online purchases to get more and more outlandish. Sourdough starters? (laughs) Please, I'm already buying yogurt starters. Please send help. Speaking of coronavirus, our intelligence researchers analyzed the common attack vectors favored by cybercriminals during this pandemic. These methods, including template injection, malicious macros, RTF exploits, and malicious LNK files, will likely continue in popularity as COVID-19 remains a threat. And though it's our third straight episode reporting on these scumbag attacks, I'm still upset by it. Tell you what, cybercriminals, take an extended at-home vacation, okay? Go learn a dance routine or do something else productive. Also on Labs, we reported on Singapore's newly announced labeling scheme to inform users about the cybersecurity of IoT devices. The scheme mirrors a UK proposal to provide this information to the public by law. This is a welcome change for an industry that treats users' smart doorbell videos like live streams on Twitch. Finally, we uncovered a malware campaign that impersonated our website to deliver an info stealer that could grab victims' login credentials, credit card info, cryptocurrency wallets, and browser information. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but no, just cut that crap out. In cybersecurity news across the world, Reuters reported that India asked top social media platforms, including Facebook and TikTok, to remove users who spread misinformation about coronavirus. Because it wasn't enough to worry about actual coronavirus and coronavirus-related online scams, we must also watch out for coronavirus misinformation. Security Week reported on a border gateway protocol hijack by the Russian state telecommunications provider Ross Telecom. The April 1st hijack diverted internet traffic for more than 200 networks, including Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Cloudflare. At least the rest of the internet seemed to spare us from April Fool's shenanigans. Cybersecurity researchers at Kaspersky analyzed the X-Helper Trojan to understand how it survives deletions and factory resets on Android devices? The answer, it's evil. The CEO of cellular threat detection company Bastille warned businesses about unseen radio frequency threats that could compromise cell phones, wearables, and IoT devices to gain access to company networks. Adding this type of threat brings our unseen attacks counter to um, 1 billion. Finally, Microsoft fixed a vulnerability that could have slammed countless Active Directory users. The company's directory service allowed users to input the term corp as a suitable path, but sometimes confidential information, like user login attempts, could actually be sent to the public website corp.com. Microsoft bought the corp.com domain for an undisclosed sum, but in February, the previous owner listed the site for $1.7 million. So if you'll excuse me, I'm going to find some valuable domains to squat on. Before we launch into our interview, a small disclaimer. 
Today's episode is a product of our current environment. Because we're using work-from-home setups, our audio falters from time to time. During our interview, my guest and I disconnected devices, stopped apps, uh, even re-recorded anything to improve our connection. But like we discuss in the interview, updating remote work connections takes time, and it takes work. In the interest of saving the former, we thought it was more important to deliver content to our listeners than to submit a perfect episode. We'll continue exploring ways to improve audio quality while recording remotely, so we wanted to choose between the two again. Thanks for your patience. Our main story today concerns COVID-19, the illness caused by the novel coronavirus that has now changed the face of the world. Now, we want to be clear. We're not going to expound on topics where we lack expertise, such as the biological structures of infectious disease, its impact on healthcare systems, or how to tell if you're symptomatic. We're a cybersecurity company, and at the end of the day, what we know is cybersecurity. But with the dramatic increase in coronavirus-related online scams and other malicious activities, we saw similarities in how we respond to computer viruses and how the world is responding to coronavirus. Preparation, identification, isolation, all of these strategies are crucial to understanding how a threat spreads, both from person to person and from machine to machine. This is a difficult time for everyone. At least 17 million Americans filed for unemployment in the past three weeks. That's about 10% of the working population. And still, countless others are trying to shift to working from home. That could mean switching to personal devices without robust cybersecurity protections offered at an office. Or it could mean trying to quickly provide cybersecurity to an entirely remote workforce. Those changes don't happen overnight. To help us better understand how we can respond to computer viruses based on the successes and failures we've already witnessed in the global response to coronavirus, we're talking today to Akshay Bhargava, Chief Product Officer at Mauerbytes. Akshay, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's great to be here, even in these unique times where you and I are having this conversation remotely from our homes. Yeah, absolutely. So COVID-19 has created a strange working environment for many. It's a scary time for sure. Absolutely. It is scary. And I certainly hope we can limit the health impact by flattening the curve through social distancing. And an additional and unfortunate scary thing, along with the increase in coronavirus cases, Powerbytes researchers are seeing an increase in the number of cyber attacks as well. Can you believe that? Attackers are using this opportunity to hide in that constant coronavirus information and promote misinformation out there. So I'm telling my friends and family, our customers, to be wary of phishing emails. Criminals will send emails claiming they have COVID-19 information, but really, it's just a way for a scam or malware infection. That's good advice, actually, and you're right. I've seen a lot of that too. Phishing attempts from threat actors impersonating, for instance, the World Health Organization, or scam emails allegedly including bogus tips on diets and prevention. But that's what we see, right? In cybersecurity, we think of the danger of cyber attacks and computer viruses. It turns out, though, that there might be an access here. What can we learn from the viral spread of the coronavirus? Yeah, David, I think there is a lot to learn, and there are many similarities. I certainly look for parallels with past events, like the Spanish flu of 1918. One thing that these events remind us are geographic boundaries 
are not always helpful in protecting ourselves. That is something that's true of viral spread of human viruses and computer viruses. We're also learning that identification of threats and understanding their characteristics is so important. So you can certainly see similarities in how we deal with cyber attacks and human viruses. For example, in cyber attacks, you first look to detect and understand the threat, how severe it is, its characteristics, what it does, and only then can you develop preventative measures. You also need to isolate the threat and build automated responses that can help prevent the threat from spreading. This includes taking all your infected endpoints off the network, isolating them so that you can do forensics to understand the root cause and also help them recover to a healthy state. We see a very similar approach when dealing with coronavirus. You have to understand how the virus spreads, how it works. You also need to isolate and quarantine the people who have it to protect others and help the infected heal. So you can see that there's these many parallels, and I think they can be instructive if we pay attention to it. Yeah, it's interesting to consider how these parallels, you know, as you said, between biological and computer viruses are so very similar. I agree. And defending against cyber attacks and biological viruses have many similarities, and we can learn from this. For example, we have aspects like research, planning, dry runs, pen testing. These should take place before, during, and after any crisis, whether that's a cyber or biological. In both human and cyber viruses, when the virus hits, you need to research what type of virus it is. For example, on a computer, you look at what type of attack it is. Where does the attack originate? Is it a nation state or a hacktivist? A lone wolf or a criminal group? Is it financially motivated? Understanding those things can tell you a lot about the intent and seriousness of the threat. Often in cybersecurity, we refer to this as attribution. With the coronavirus, researchers and doctors look at similar factors like the spread rate, mortality rate, the incubation timeframe, and more. They also learn a lot from the family of virus. For example, you know, with coronavirus, it's zoonotic. It's a respiratory virus with flu-like symptoms. So that research helps inform the customized set of actions that should be taken. Cyber attacks require similar categorization with different nomenclature to help researchers make sense of that. So for example, we'll look at malicious code behavior to determine first, is it ransomware, spyware, or a Trojan? We'll also look at attributes like, is there lateral movement, encryption, callback to a CNC server? Then we can determine and prioritize our response. We look at things like, what's the dwell time? What's the mean time to detect and respond? As you know, with coronavirus, the sooner we can test someone to determine if they have the virus, the sooner we can isolate and prevent the spread. What do you see as the biggest value in making these comparisons? It forces us to plan better. So David, with better planning, we can reduce the potential of a data breach and the impact that could have to an organization, whether that's a lot of money lost and legal brand and remediation costs. Similarly, what we've learned in COVID-19 is you cannot start planning during the pandemic. It's important for governments, businesses, and households to prepare beforehand. Otherwise, you run into supply chain issues, technical issues. For example, all the toilet paper's gone, thermometers, disinfectant wipes, hand sanitizers, gone. More importantly, we are learning that key medical supplies 
are hard to acquire or produce if you don't plan ahead. So the gist is you need to know what you would do before an outbreak. If businesses do dry runs, they could limit the potential damage. If we, as a society, prepared better for infectious disease outbreaks, we know that we would be in a better place with testing availability, medical staff, and supplies. Yeah. Trying to get some takeaways, you know, as a consumer, what three steps can I, and those listening, take to be safe online? So a lot of us are now working from home or spending a lot of time online due to this pandemic. I'll share a couple of important things to be safe online. First, regardless of the pandemic, get yourself a password manager. And we all have way too many passwords to remember. So if you don't use a password manager, you're going to inevitably resort to either reusing a password or using common passwords. In fact, a Google survey recently found that two in three people reuse passwords. That's a big no-no in security. The second thing is you should use precaution when clicking on links. I've seen hundreds of new emails coming in from everyone I do business with. They all want to tell something about how they're dealing with the coronavirus situation, which is nice, and I'm sure many are legitimate, but cyber crooks are inserting their emails and text messages among all the legitimate communications. And some of them are hard to tell apart from the real ones. So because it's difficult to discern which are safe and which are not, be really careful before clicking on links. Yeah, our cybersecurity experts in our Malwarebytes Labs team have found multiple attacks like this, just like you were saying. You know, one nation state created a fake copy of the Johns Hopkins global map of coronavirus outbreaks and inserted malware. If someone clicked on it, they unknowingly would have downloaded malware onto their computer. Yeah, just like that. It's that simple. And we found so many more examples of this. And we keep seeing every day, we keep seeing new examples of this. So one of the things that's important for our listeners is if you expect an email from someone, for example, if it's a friend or family member or from a newsletter you signed up for, then you're probably okay. But you still need to look very closely at that email address and determine if the sender is from a legitimate domain. So that's the part after the at sign right? Sometimes the bad guys, what they can do is they can spoof or fake that email address. So it's also really useful to hover over the web links in the body of the email. You know, you can view the actual email URL and determine if the URL links, you know, to a legitimate website that you recognize, right? So for example, when you, you hover over with your mouse, you'll see like it'll pop up and say, here's the full link. And, you know, a lot of times attackers will try to make typos that you might miss so for example, if I were sending you to a site and I said, looked at it and it said malwarebytes.com slash an additional set of things, it's probably good because malwarebytes.com is proven. So one of the things users have to do is, unfortunately, we need to educate ourselves, right? Otherwise, it's hard to tell these things because attackers are you know, very creative. If you're fortunate, like we are at Malwarebytes, we have a very strong IT security team. So whenever we're in doubt, we have a way to submit suspicious emails and they will do the hard work for us to tell us if it's safe or not. The second big thing definitely is, is focus on those links. And then the third and final thing that I'll share, and maybe this is the most important thing actually, is to be safer, is to download an antivirus solution like what Malwarebytes we provide with our Malwarebytes Premium. And that can help you know, detect threats and prevent malware infection before it even happens. Furthermore, if you have already been infected with viruses, 
Malware bites can help remove them and more importantly, protect you from getting a new virus in the future. It's all excellent advice. But I'm also curious, you know, what, what about our business listeners? Can you give us a few steps to help make them safer? Absolutely. Businesses should be following very similar steps. But what's unique to business users is that they often have access to sensitive data that's very valuable to cyber criminals and nation states. That's why we're seeing a rapid increase in businesses being targeted and attacked. Going back to some of the recommendations, again, definitely I recommend use a password manager, but you need to uplevel that security with something that's referred to as two-factor authentication. So personal users can do the same as well if their software service enables this capability. So the way that this works is essentially if you have access to an application or website, you'll have to prove you are who you say you are. And you do this by receiving and entering a code that could be sent to your phone or a different email address than the one you use to access the site. So with that level of two-factor authentication, it becomes you know, nearly impossible for a criminal to get your password, username, and access to your phone. So that gives you a strong sense of, of security. Makes it highly unlikely they'd be able to access the business application. The second thing for businesses, I think it's important to use a single sign-on technology from an online identity provider. So this means you only have to know and use one single password to access all of your business applications and the online identity provider makes sure that that's safe and secure. And so it becomes increasingly important to use a very strong password for that one central password that you use, protect and store it in that password manager we talked about earlier. And then finally, David, the the last thing I would say is that Your endpoints need to be protected. Whether you're a small business with less than 50 computers or a 100,000 employee enterprise, your IT department should be deploying endpoint protection software. And I can just share a few criteria about what that endpoint protection software should provide, right? So a few things. First, it should have multiple layers of defense that help to prevent different types of attack, whether they're traditional threats and also the latest modern threats that target users, applications, and processes. The solution should also be easy to deploy and use. I mean, nobody has lots of extra IT staff or cybersecurity personnel, so it's gotta be easy. And it also should be user-friendly. The typical small, medium business has more than 50 security tools, and there's a huge shortage in cybersecurity talent. So I think those are some of the really important things. And then I think the, the last thing I'll say is that the endpoint protection platform should also be really powerful and use the latest technologies like artificial intelligence and automation as attackers are using those same latest technologies. So you want to make sure you're using cutting edge technology. And it should also be based in the cloud so that it can scale easily and use the processing power of modern computing to analyze, assess, and detect today's most sophisticated cyber threats. Wow, that's really helpful. And I wanted to close our interview here with a personal question that many folks are probably asking themselves right now, which is, how are you finding any sense of calm? You know, particularly for the cybersecurity industry too, where we have to not only be bombarded with coronavirus news, but we also have to be kind of all hands on deck with increased cybersecurity threats. With so much going on, how do you sleep at night? You know, yeah, it's a great question. And it's tough. And world events can cause you to rethink things. And Look at them in a new way. You know, that's how I felt when I was reading this book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind 
by Yuval Noah Harari. And I find it helpful to look for positive lessons from history without blinding ourselves to the threats. Now, certainly we can see that in the crisis, there is evidence that people want to help each other. And I think the huge, huge positive takeaway for me, no one person or one country can best solve a crisis. We need each other. We need to work together and follow a global approach to these big problems. So David, while it's not easy to sleep well in the midst of everything going on, I just hope that the lessons from history, humanity, and our determination can help give us some strength. Akshay, thank you so much for being on the show. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with J.P. Taggart, senior security researcher at Malwarebytes, to discuss VPNs, what they offer, what they don't protect you from, common mistruths, and how you can best utilize them for online privacy.